This is part four of the Boudicca series. If you haven't listened to parts one through three, you should check them out because we are halfway through the journey right now. And if you are just tuning in now, you might be asking, how did we get here? Boudicca and the Britons have sacked the two largest cities in Roman-controlled Britannia, the capital Camulodunum and the city of Londinium. An entire legion was knocked out of commission by the Britons, and Boudicca was on the search for her next target. Meanwhile, the Romans had a mad scramble to gather the troops that were left on the island and head east to engage the now critical threat from Boudicca's army, which continued to gain followers with each victory. Will the Britons continue to ransack Roman cities? Will the Romans find a way to put down this rebellion? Or will some form of a peace treaty be made between the warring factions? Well, it is probably not that last one, but let's see what happens. Hello, and welcome to the Spark History Show, where we bring history to light. Take a dive with us into history and hear the real accounts of the stories of the past as they actually unfolded. Explore with us as we shine some light on the amazing events that shaped our world into what we have today. We are going to recreate the stories of the past to better understand the struggles and triumphs during the most epic moments in history. This is the Spark History Show. Let us begin the journey. The next target for the marauding army would be the third largest town of Roman Britain, Verulamium, which is known today as St. Albans. The first two targets were Roman cities through and through. One was the home of retired Roman soldiers and the capital, and the other was a trading center of Roman citizens. The change in plans to attack Verulamium was that the town was primarily comprised of fellow Britons with their round huts and thatched roofs rather than square Roman buildings with tile roofs. The difference was that this city had sided with the Romans, and the Britons thought of them as treasonous, as they gave up the way of life of the Britons for the comforts of Roman civilization. There was also a tribal vengeance that was sought from the Trinovantes, which were fighting in Boudicca's army. The Catavolunai tribe had fought against the Trinovantes in earlier times and had been the ones to capture what became the city of Camulodunum, which later became the Roman capital. The Trinovantes still had hostility towards their neighboring tribe, which had invaded their lands. The Boudicca Rebellion gave them a great way to strike back at their old enemy. The city of Verulamium was an important asset for the Catavolunai tribe, and attacking it would be a blow to the strength of the tribe. The Romans had deemed the town of Verulamium significant enough to realign a Roman road that was being built to ensure it would pass through this town. Unlike the other attacks, word had spread about the sacking of the Roman cities, and the people of Verulamium knew what would be in store for them. As Boudicca's army slowly regrouped and marched northwest toward the town, the inhabitants preemptively packed all of their belongings and fled the city. Knowing that the two most prized Roman cities were already destroyed, there was no hope of anyone coming to save their much smaller town. 
While the Britons were moving their forces the 25 to 30 miles from the area of Londinium to Verulamium, Suetonius Paulinus and his cavalry were heading back to meet up again with his infantry marching along the Roman roads coming from western Britain. Suetonius had to devise a plan where he would have the advantage in engaging in a fight with Boudicca and her army. Since he scrapped the plan to defend Londinium and Verulamium, he would be able to wait for the right moment to initiate battle. Wait for the moment to set battle on his terms. Remember when we said how Suetonius sent word to the 2nd Augusta Legion that was fighting in southwest Britain to send troops to assist his current forces in stopping Boudicca? Well, the message arrived to the 2nd Legion, which was based out of a fort in what is now the city of Exeter on the southwestern peninsula of Britain. The problem was that when Suetonius met up with his own troops, the soldiers from the 2nd Legion were nowhere to be found. It turns out that the leader of the 2nd Augusta had been killed, and the command had been taken over by a subordinate. When word was received to send troops to meet with Suetonius, the 2nd's commander by the name of Ponius Postumus had refused and decided to keep the troops in their current position. For the past 10 years or so, the 2nd Legion had been fighting on and off with the local tribe of the Ciliars in southern Wales. I know I'm referring to a lot of the different tribes and territories here. I'm going to put a link to a map of England which shows the main territories and which tribe ruled over each area. Check out our notes on the website if you want the visual representation. Notice that the original commander of the 2nd Legion had been killed, presumably in combat. The second was barely able to hold its own in their current position. The new and inexperienced leader may have thought it would be much too risky to send troops away and leave the southern frontier defenseless. Ponius was actually thrust into the position of commander when several soldiers above him had been killed. He was not a seasoned general or highly decorated officer. In the United States, if a president dies, the vice president takes over. If the vice president dies or is incapacitated, the speaker of the House of Representatives takes over. And if he is gone, then it goes on and on through a list of prominent positions of people in the government. In Ponius's case, he was ninth in the line of succession to commander. With a Roman legion comprised of 5,000 men, which is divided into many cohorts, with each being led by a centurion, there could be up to 80 centurions in the legion. If nine centurions above Ponius had been killed, that means that 11% of the leadership of the legion had been wiped out in their numerous battles. These centurions are the equivalent to modern-day officers. And although their job was dangerous on the front line, it wouldn't be expected that a, such a, a large number of them would be wiped out. In terms of the U.S. presidential succession, it would be as though the Secretary of Commerce would have to come in and fill the shoes of the president as everyone above him had been killed. Looking back on history, it is hard to tell if Ponius made the right call with the information that he had at hand. 
We do know that the second definitely did not have a cakewalk defending the southwestern frontier, and there was some fierce fighting that was going on. In the end, this decision did not turn out so well for Ponius, but we will speak more about that later. Boudicca's forces arrive at Verulamium, which had been mostly evacuated. Once again, they charged into the city to pillage and loot. But there was a difference in this town. The city had been forewarned of the danger, and most of the people and valuables had been removed. Archaeological evidence from this area shows, in contrast to the sacking of Camelodunum and Londinium, that they had no leftover coins scattered about from when the city was ransacked. Finding mostly empty buildings, Boudicca's army set fire to the town, eager to move on to the next locale that might have some more wealth to seize. Turns out that a change in the wind direction meant the fires were not spreading through the town as they had in the other destroyed cities, and some of the buildings were left only partially destroyed. In the previous two cities, every effort was made to ensure that the entire city was gone by the time the army left. Here, it seemed the army had not been all that thrilled with sacking the empty city and wanted to hurry up and move on to the next target of opportunity. This is an important point in Boudicca's campaign. The first two cities were purely Roman in design, culture, and people. But Verulamium was comprised of fellow Britons. True, they may have sided with the Romans and tried to adopt their style of civilization, but they were still native Britons. Keep in mind that the idea of England, the United Kingdom, Britain, all these names were not yet in the human psyche. The land that we had been calling Britain was not known as one universal nation as we think of it today. It was known as a land where many different tribes fought to gain additional territory. With Boudicca's last attack, it seems as though she went from directly attacking and putting pressure on the Romans to falling to the ancient ways of attacking other tribes native to her own land. Yes, that may have pleased the Trinovantes that they got to deal a severe blow to their historic enemies, the Catavaluni, but did it really move the campaign against the Romans in a forward direction? Not going directly after the Roman leader Suetonius Paulinus or moving to engage the Roman army at haste, the Britons lost the initiative in the campaign. After destroying the third city of Verulamium, the army also attacked local farmsteads along the countryside of the town. I didn't mention this before, but an archaeological dig in London showed that there was grain that was found from when Boudicca sacked the city that was called Einkorn. This grain was native to continental Europe, which meant it had to have been imported into Britain. Since Britain at the time should have been self-sufficient in grain production, it may indicate that there was a shortage this year in the grain supply, and grain was therefore being imported from other areas. There may have been a food shortage at the time which could have heightened the chances of rebellion, since some of the Roman taxes were paid in grain. People had to give up their own food that they would use to feed their families to instead pay the tax. This might also show that Boudicca needed to keep attacking the cities and farms to gather food supplies to support her now massive army. 
The problem with all these ideas is that they are speculation. We don't have records to show what truly happened in this ancient period. Maybe the citizens of London at the time simply wanted a different tasting grain and were happy to purchase imported cereals in the marketplace. It is good though that there is a bunch of evidence such as we have here in the type of foods and archaeological excavations that can help solidify or disprove different aspects of the rebellion. For Boudicca, victory was in her grasp. Three of the largest Roman cities had been destroyed, and any resistance that had been put up by the Romans was swept aside easily. You know, this is like the kid who is really good in local school sports as a child, and then he gets up to high school or college and sees that the level of play is a lot more intense. He is no longer the biggest or fastest kid. Maybe he runs into someone that is much more proficient, or maybe there are other people on an even playing field with him. Boudicca would eventually have to take on Suetonius and his army, and this was a seasoned legion that had been fighting continuously to put down uprisings in Roman territory. This is the difference from playing JV and moving to varsity. Would Boudicca's ragtag army be able to compete with a trained and disciplined Roman legion? Did you ever hear an old story of how a dispute was decided by a one-on-one -on -one challenge between two ancient warriors that were fighting on behalf of their tribe or kingdom instead of having full armies battle it out? Well, that was actually part of the tribal culture in Britain before the arrival of the Romans. A lot of the disputes between tribes could be settled in this manner, mano e mano. This would save much unneeded bloodshed. The problem with this is how are these warriors going to fare when matched up against an army that is trained to work together as a single unit as the Romans are? Fighting a 1v1 battle, as in the beginning of the movie Troy with Brad Pitt, is one thing. Yes, it looks pretty cool, and one warrior can show off his skills, like when Brad Pitt's character Achilles quickly defeats a foe nearly twice his size by using his agility. But if that warrior is just a cog in a larger machine, would he still be so effective? If there were thousands of enemy and friendly warriors around him, would his showmanship and skills be outmatched by the enemy's teamwork? Paulinus and his cavalry had traveled back along the Roman road of Watling Street to meet up again with his legion. There was a rendezvous spot that the troops had to meet with the other men from the second legion that they expected to come from Suetonius's order. But remember, Ponius, the man now in charge of the second legion, deemed his position to be untenable and had disobeyed Suetonius's order to send troops. We don't have confirmation that the news did make its way back to the troops waiting at the rendezvous. Even if there was a rider sent with a message, he may have been intercepted by the locals. In any case, after waiting a short period of time, Suetonius and his force realized that they had to make do without any additional support. In Tacitus' record of the events, he reports that at this point, 70,000 civilians and allies and up to 1,500 Roman soldiers had been killed. 
Again, from this Roman historical version of the event, the casualties were probably stretched or morphed for political reasons. The 1,500 soldiers would have been from the 9th Legion under Serialis that were ambushed and made combat ineffective. But in any event, these are huge losses on the Roman side. Polonius would have to report back to the Roman Emperor Nero that not only had they lost three of their best cities, but also a massive amount of the population had been wiped out. Paulinus, as governor of the Britannia territory, needed to end this rebellion himself. He needed to set up one pitched battle where he could engage the full army of Britons and wipe out the dissenters in one swift blow. This was the type of warfare that the Romans excelled at, drawing in the enemy or instead swarming to them and forcing a battle against their well-oiled machine of war in the form of the Roman legion with heavy armored infantry. He knew that Boudicca's army was comprised of many different tribes and chieftains. The way they fought would be to band together with their local chief and fight a battle in small packs around their fellow tribesmen. They would not have the organization and coordination of the Romans. Dio estimated that Boudicca's army had swelled to 230,000 people, which almost every historian claims is greatly exaggerated. A more respectable and feasible number would have been maybe around 100,000. But remember, the warriors were traveling with their families and relatives on wagons, and we don't know how this could have skewed the numbers. Paulinus may have assembled in his force to confront Boudicca maybe 10,000 to 20,000 troops from the 20th and 14th legions along with their auxiliaries. The Romans had sacrificed a lot by holding off on engaging the enemy force, holding back as civilians were murdered in the streets of their cities. Already having their fellow countrymen's homes set ablaze and possessions stolen, Paulinus definitely didn't want to lose the advantage he had gained by holding off on engaging the enemy. We don't have much evidence of either of the army's movements after the sacking of Verulamium or the exact location of the huge battle that would come after, but it seems as if Paulinus was positioning himself to fight on the grounds that he wanted before fully committing his troops to battle. Paulinus set up his forces in a carefully picked location, and soon Boudicca's forces arrived and could be seen in the distance. Here is a quote of how Tacitus describes the position of Suetonius Paulinus. Quote, Chose a position approached by a narrow defile, shut off at the rear by a nearby forest, having first ensured that there were no enemy soldiers except at his front, where an open plain extended without any threat of ambush. End quote. To give a grand overview of the situation, it was believed that Boudicca's army had been traveling along the Roman Watling Street to meet the enemy Suetonius in the field. Suetonius knew this was the case and set up his forces ahead of time before the army of Britons arrived. 
He most likely assumed that Boudicca would not want to risk being ambushed by continuing along Watling Street through a heavily wooded area along the street's path. So what he did was he scouted the geography to determine what areas a large, massive army such as that of Boudicca's would take to detour around the street's path through the forest. It turns out that there was a nearby river that had a route around the right side of the forest. You see, recon and knowledge of your surroundings can be very important. Assuming this was the most likely detour, Paulinus set up his forces near one of the curves of the river a bit downstream. The spot he chose was a valley where he positioned his forces with the woods behind them and an open field in front of him. In this area, it gave him a slight elevation and also had the trees wrap around the sides of his forces a bit in a horseshoe shape. Try to picture an upside down U or C shape cut out of a forest with the open part facing you. The farther you walk into the open area of the C-shape, the higher the elevation would become and the more the trees would wrap around you. Wedged into the back of this shape were the full might of Roman legions and the Roman governor of Britain. Alright, so now imagine a force of 100,000 or more people forming Boudicca's army traveling alongside a river path in an open field. They pulled their carts and supplies along with them with a forest to their left and the river off on the right. The troops were able to replenish themselves with the water as they continued on their path. Now, rivers and streams, they never flow in a straight line. If you look at an aerial photo of a river, it always twists and turns and kind of meanders around the countryside as it finds its way. So as this massive force makes a left turn following the twisting plane of the river, they see something off in the distance. As they round the corner, they see the full deployment of Paulinus' army at the other end of a valley which leads into the plane of the river. Battle cries were called out, and Boudicca rode her chariot ahead to get a better grasp of the situation. Seeing the hated enemy in front of her, ready for a fight, she knew this was it. After marching all day, it is most likely that the Britons made camp in the safe distance from the enemy, and then prepared for battle the next morning. The Romans, having chosen this specific position to fight, were not going anywhere. The day of the battle, Boudicca gathered the other leaders of her army and spread word to prepare for battle. The camp of the Britons became alive with movement as everyone prepared for the engagement. Boudicca started to have her troops form up some distance in front of the Romans, out of the range of any of their weapons. This was the battle she had been waiting for. Defeating this force of the Roman governor of Britain would smash the last major army that the Romans could put on the field. Her soldiers were in high morale and were itching to fight a real battle after only being able to sack cities previously. At first glance, the Roman position didn't seem too advantageous. The forest in this area was too thick for an army to effectively fight in. The Romans had trapped themselves into this little valley. 
Boudicca would not have to worry about a counterattack from the flanks, and also there wasn't any real threat of ambush as all of the Romans were left out in the open in clear view. Now that they had finally caught up to the enemy force, the Britons were itching for a fight. As the native warriors grouped together with their chiefs in the front, the carts and families followed in behind them, and the mass of people in Boudicca's army started to place the carts in a semicircle behind their own troops forming in front of them. It was kind of like they were setting up an arena to watch the carnage as their proud warriors would butcher the enemy in front of them. The families had first-class seats to the battle and could cheer on their troops as they were fighting. It reminds me of the other podcast series we did on the ironclads during the American Civil War. In that scenario, people set up on shore to watch the battle of the naval forces on the water. I guess people just like to watch a good battle and cheer for their side. Paulinus observed as the Britons set up. This was a territory that he had chosen to fight. Although it may not have been noticed by the Britons, this territory had a number of advantages for the Romans. As Paulinus stood on the higher ground with the open plain in front of him, he could see every movement that the Britons made in their formations, where they could send reinforcements to their line, and which areas of their line might show the signs of being the first to buckle and break during the fighting. This effectively eliminated the fog of war, which occurred in most battles where all the leader could see was what was happening right in front of him and his unit in particular. The forest also provided a defense in that knowing it was too thick to effectively fight in, Boudicca formed all her troops in the open plain in front of the Romans. This meant that the Romans would not have to worry about being surrounded by the much larger army of Boudicca, which was most likely at least 10 times, 10 times their own. Another aspect of the shape of the valley and the way the trees wrapped around the flanks meant that the Britons would be wedged in tight for close hand-to-hand combat, which is exactly what the Romans excelled at. And at the same time, the enemy's superior numbers wouldn't account for as much as they were to be funneled into a narrow valley. This is like the Spartan 300 style battle, where one small force could possibly hold off a larger army by forcing them into a narrow channel to fight, where they couldn't utilize their superior numbers. Sounds just like the Battle of Thermopylae and the Spartans. Think of it this way. If the Romans had set up as we picture battle in medieval times or in Napoleonic warfare with their troops stretched out in a long line in an open field facing each other, it would be a perfect scenario for the Britons. The Britons have 10 times the troops and could have their lines spread for over a mile longer than the Roman lines, even if their formation were several soldiers deep. In this case, The Britons could directly engage the flanks of the Romans and even encircle them as the fighting started. There would be no area for the Romans to pull off the front line to have troops rest or to hold reserves back in a safe area. Their entire unit would be engaged. Boudicca may have known some of the disadvantages of her position, but what was she to do? Her troops had been following her in anticipation of this fight. 
They were like rabid dogs out for meat. How could you hold them back now with the enemy in sight and bloodlust in their eyes? The enemy was right there in front of them, small in number and seemingly trapped. After the Britons' previous victories, how could a small Roman contingent as what stood before them stand a chance against the huge force that had arrived? The terrain the Romans picked also boxed them in. It would be difficult for them to retreat or fall back once the Britons engaged them. If the Britons could overwhelm them, they might not only be able to deal a decisive blow to the Roman force, they might actually be able to completely wipe them out and capture or kill the Roman governor Paulinus. But Paulinus was a seasoned general. He had been fighting for decades. He had quelled a rebellion in Mauritania over 20 years earlier, had fought in the Atlas Mountains of North Africa, and was now prepared to take on Boudicca and her army. This battle was set up on land unfamiliar to the Iceni, the heart of Boudicca's troops. The tribes that made up Boudicca's army were now in unfamiliar territory. This was not where their homes were located. With detailed maps and knowledge of the terrain, the Romans knew the most likely route the Britons could take, the spots for a potential ambush, and the avenues for retreat that could be presented to their enemy. Back on the battlefield, an army of Britons was now gathered in front of their enemy. Across from them, the legions stood in cold silence, the red and silver colors from their armor and attire standing out in the distance. The mob of Britons were chanting and hollering war cries at their enemy. The Romans stood still and firm. Imagine the nerve for the Romans having such a large enemy bearing down on them. Every soldier could see the force assembled in front of them was more than 10x their own. How do you maintain discipline with overwhelming odds like that? What would stop the men from... <laughs> turning tail and running for their life when faced with these unsurmountable odds? I'm sure many of the soldiers were capable fighters, but I doubt they were action movie star Bruce Lee style super soldiers that could each take on 10 guys at once on their own. The training and discipline that was ingrained in the troops must have been superb. This reminds me of one of the punishment tactics that the Romans had used at one time or another to enforce discipline within their ranks. This is just an example of how seriously the Roman Empire took the idea of discipline, which had been used on a few occasions in the empire's history. If a unit decided to flee in the face of battle, afterwards, they would all be rounded up. Then, every 10th man or so would be picked out of the line of deserters and then the rest of the men left in the unit of deserters would then have to beat these men that were called out from the general group they would have to beat them to death with clubs a brutal physical and psychological experience for anyone that would have to partake in this cruel punishment now I know, I know this tactic was only used a few times in the history of the Roman Empire, but the fact that this type of punishment was even an option, that it was even on the table, 
showed how important discipline was to the Roman military units. They would stand there and fight to the death in the face of an enemy that wanted to outright cut them to pieces. This resilience of the legion gave them great strength as a fighting unit. The courage under fire allowed the unit to maintain formations and act together as one cohesive fighting unit rather than a disorderly mob. We can see how high levels of discipline can pull through with thin odds when we look at other times in history, such as when the British Empire was fighting against a much larger army of Zulu kingdom warriors in Africa. Discipline and being able to hold your nerves in these situations was paramount. With her army formed up, Boudicca led her chariot out in front of her people, raising her spear into the air and turned her head to face her troops as she passed by each tribe. With all of the emotions and adrenaline coursing through her, she then addressed her soldiers with a great speech, I would imagine just like the one in the movie Braveheart, to get her troops fired up and ready for the coming battle. Although her exact words are unknown, both of the Roman historians Tacitus and Dio provide their own versions of her speech. Tacitus recounts her, stating, quote, But now it is not a woman descended from illustrious ancestry, but as one of the people that I am avenging my lost freedom, my lashed body, the outraged honor of my daughters. Roman greed has developed to such an extent that not even our persons, nor even our age or our virginity are let unpolluted. But heaven is on the side of just vengeance. One legion which dared to fight has been destroyed. The rest are cowering in their camps or anxiously seeking a means of escape. They will not stand even in shout of so many thousands, let alone our attack and our weapons. If you balance the strength of our armies and the reasons for this war, then you must conquer or die. This is a woman's decision. As for men, they can live and become slaves. End quote. In this excerpt from Tacitus, we can clearly see that his form of the speech is set up as though a Roman had written it. He discusses the moral issue of the Romans for the crimes they committed and their greed, which was standard practice when Roman statesmen spoke about the moral decay of their society. He also makes several references to Boudicca as a female leader. In her true speech, it is much less likely that she discussed such issues, but Tacitus, writing for the Roman audience, had to make reference to a situation which was uncommon in their society a female military leader. The speech then uses the common Roman rhetoric of what are known as triplets. The line in the speech where they say freedom, lashed body, and outraged honor is one triplet. A second triplet is found in the part stating our persons, our age, or our virginity. Romans always laid an importance on using triplets, and it is curious that they are found multiple times in the speech supposedly by Boudicca. The rule of three is still used to this day, and it represents a system of writing that is more effective or pleasing to the ear than other options available to the writer. It made more sense for a Roman writing the speech at a later date to be aware of the use of triplets 
than a tribesman in ancient Britain who was more concerned with the rage boiling over inside her than in how her literary prose would be reviewed hundreds of years later. Dio also recounts the speech that Boudicca gave as she paraded in front of her troops, but his is a little different than Tacitus's. Quote, You have realized through experience how different liberty is from slavery. Therefore, while some of you may have believed the enticing promises of the Romans through sheer ignorance, now that you've tasted both, you'll understand how wrong you were in choosing foreign oppression to your ancient way of life. And you'll have come to learn that it is better to have poverty with freedom than wealth with servitude. For what can be worse than the treatment we have suffered since these men came over to Britain? End quote. Dio then goes on for some time in the speech about discussing why retribution must be had against the Romans. But most of this context, when viewed by historians, is most likely Dio trying to explain to the fellow Romans the uniqueness of this foreign culture. Let's skip over that and to the end part where Dio claims Boudicca described why the Britons could take out this mighty force. Quote, We have such an excess of bravery that we consider our tents to be safer than their walls and our shields better at protecting us than their whole suits of armor. Because of this, when we win, we capture them, and should they overpower us, we can still escape. And if we decide to retreat somewhere, we can melt away into swamps and mountains so that they can never find us. Unlike us, they fall prey to hunger, thirst, cold, or heat. They need shade and shelter. They need leavened bread, wine, and oil. And without these, they die. Whereas we have grasses and roots for bread, the sap of any plant for oil, water for wine and trees as houses. What's more, we know this landscape as a friend, but to them it is strange and dangerous. As for the rivers, we can cross them naked, whereas they find them hard to cross even in boats. So, let us prove to them that they are hares and foxes trying to rule over dogs and wolves. End quote. Oh yeah, I like that last line. Let us prove to them that they are hares and foxes trying to rule over dogs and wolves. Yes, get those troops fired up. I like that this version of the speech goes into that. Yes, the Romans have more armor. Yes, they may have larger cities and civilization. And yes, they may have so many options of food that they are picky in what they eat. But that is what made them become weak. The enemy troops grew soft in their cities, sitting in baths and munching on grapes. Anyway, did you notice how I used the rule of three there? Shout out to Tacitus. This is the same mindset that the Mongols would take on a thousand years later when they would create one of the largest empires in world history. The Mongols were people from the territory of the Eurasian steppe, a harsh, cruel, and desolate environment. Living as nomads, their way of life made them tough and able to survive through anything. 
there was actually a policy that Mongol troops that were living the the soft life in conquered Chinese cities would actually have to move back to the steppe and go back to their nomadic way of life for a time period to prevent them from losing that rough edge they had when their daily life was based on survival. It makes sense that Boudicca, facing a heavily armored enemy from a larger and what some would say civilized form of lifestyle, would take the same approach to calm her troops, stating that these fools and their city life made them soft. The Britons were one with nature. They could survive anywhere in their homeland based on the fruits that nature provided. These high and mighty Romans that stood before them with their pampered lifestyle had no idea what was in store for them once the gritty warriors of Britannia descended on them. After her speech, Boudicca's army cheered on for their warrior queen in the upcoming battle. And the cold and sharp as ice battle cries and taunts reached the Roman line, sending chills down their backs. The Britons were armed with anything they could have grabbed as a weapon. Many had their knives, others had swords, and many had shields and spears. Think of the Roman position looking upon the mass of bloodthirsty soldiers assembled in front of them, pointing their weapons at them and taunting them. Most of the Britons had nothing in the way of body armor. Many were even bare-chested and had the traditional blue war paint of their culture painted along their torso and face in the typical swirling design of the Druids of this time period. Some even had their hair spiked up with lime in a mohawk, which was an extremely foreign and barbaric look to the Romans. These were the same warriors that had already butchered the populace of several Roman cities. This was not the type of adversary that you'd want to run into in a dark alley. The religion of the Druids believed in forms of reincarnation, all these Britons were prepared to fight until a glorious death, upon which they would be given a chance to be resurrected. I live, I die, I live again. Imagine fighting against warriors that thought so little of the fear of dying that they just wanted to go out in an epic manner to gain glory. That is what the Romans were up against. The Romans were positioned in a standard historical formation, with the infantry across the center and the cavalry taking up positions on the flanks. The heavy infantry of the seasoned legionnaires made up the center of the force. This was the strong core of the army. Then, outside of them were the light infantry and auxiliary units. The Roman force stretched out across their position to the tree lines of the forest. Roman troops were well equipped for battle. The Roman legionnaires had some of the best body armor of the time period. The soldiers wore what was known as a lorica segmentata, which was segmented metal armor that covered the torso. The armor was comprised of strips of heavy iron plate and was held together with leather straps and buckles. The shoulders were covered in strips of this metal that could oscillate with the movement of the arm, allowing full range of motion for battle while still providing protection. Important for when you were swinging your sword or shield around, outmaneuvering an enemy. 
Helmets were utilized that had side pieces to protect the ears, side of the face, and back of the neck. The shield that was carried was 4.19 feet or 1.28 meters long and was as wide as a man's body. Each Roman soldier carried weapons, including the infamous gladius, or short sword, and the pilum, or form of a javelin. The gladius was best used for thrusting and stabbing motions. It is different than the longsword that you are probably familiar with from medieval times, which would be more effective in a swinging and hacking motion. The pilum at first glance would be similar to a javelin from any civilization from this time period. But a closer inspection brings out some interesting points. The tip was barbed just as a hunting arrow would be today. Once it's stuck in an enemy, the tip would be difficult to take out as pulling against it would pull the broader side of the V-shaped arrowhead back against your skin. It would do even more damage and cause a much larger wound if pulled out. The pilum also had a special weakened iron shank as part of the device. Once it was thrown, the impact of hitting an enemy or the ground would cause it to bend and make the javelin unusable with the now crooked front section of the javelin where the point had once stood straight. It would be like poking the curved side of a cane at someone rather than the side that came to a point. This meant the enemy couldn't pick them up and throw them back at the Romans. Throughout the Roman military's design in their armor and weapons, you can see these small technological advances that when combined with one another across all of the Romans' gear, it would give them a significant advantage in battle. Paulinus gave his own troops a speech before the battle to help calm their nerves and prepare themselves for the upcoming fury. He had to pull the strings of the sense of discipline and training that the soldiers had that would get them through this battle, no matter what the odds. He gave his speech, and his men held their lines, ready to do what they had been trained to do. Across from the Romans was the mass of angry Britons that probably outnumbered them more than ten to one. Chariots zipped back and forth across the front of the line, and Boudicca was among them as she rallied her troops. The warriors were all sopped up on ale from the night before and were ready for a brawl. Now they got to unleash their hatred on the Roman soldiers. Once the leaders worked their troops up into a frenzy, the warriors hopped off their chariots and joined the ranks of their men. Each tribe was set up as their own unit with their friends and townsmen surrounding them. The battle is coming up. But this episode is getting pretty long, so we are going to have to come in here and close out part four of the Boudicca series. If you've been enjoying the show, please help us out by leaving a short written review on your podcast directory. You can do it right from your phone. While you're doing that, we're going to get right to work on the final part five of the series, where we'll be jumping right into the battle between Boudicca with her Britons and Paulinus with his legions. 
we will see who is left standing as the ruler of Britannia after the battle and the fallout from all the events that have transpired. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Spark History or subscribe to our newsletter to discover as soon as our next episode is released. If you want to check out our other series or see the show notes, head over to our website at sparkhistory.com. Thank you for listening and have a great day.